want to invite you to open your Bibles again to Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we looked last week at the first portion of Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to continue uh, in Matthew this morning. Some of you uh, will remember this. Uh, I know I, as a kid, I grew up eating, uh, often for breakfast, eating cold cereal. And uh, one of the regulars, at least when I was a kid, was, was Kellogg's Corn Flakes, a cereal that was first created, I think, in 1894. It's been around for a while. Well, in the early 90s, there was an advertisement campaign that, that uh, Kellogg's launched for, uh, for Corn Flakes. And uh, the, the, the tagline was, taste them again for the first time. Uh, this morning, as we turn to a story that probably uh, there is some familiarity for us, uh, I, I want us to, uh, to hear again for the first time this story. Uh, there's a couple dangers that we face when we come to the Christmas story year after year after year. On the one hand, uh, there's the danger that we approach uh, the Christmas story uh, naively, sort of with these images, sentimental images uh, of the story unfolding uh, idyllically. Uh, you know, a warm and cozy stable, uh, quiet, gentle barn animals serenading this newborn baby. Uh, shepherds freshly showered in, in freshly laundered robes smelling of, of downy. Mary and Joseph relaxed and comfortable. Uh, it just these images from Christmas cards and nativity scenes that are highly unrealistic. There's there's the danger in that direction, but there's also the danger that we approach this with with a sense of of familiarity, where we we really don't even pay attention. We we've heard it before a gazillion times, and and there just seems to be nothing new for us. Well, this morning I do hope that we can uh, taste this again, that we can hear this again, that we can see this again for the first time. Uh, we're going to look at the Christmas story, the next part of uh, Matthew's telling of this narrative, uh, looking at chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And what I want us to see is that this story of Christmas is a story of courage. Uh, the coming of Christ required courage for Joseph, uh, as we see in our text, and that the coming of Christ requires courage from us, from all who will trust in Jesus. Now, last Sunday, we walked through the first part of Matthew's gospel, the genealogy, the story before the story. And we saw as we unpacked that, that, that God is at work in history uh, using and including broken people to accomplish all his purposes for blessing and redemption. This morning, we carry on and we're going to see this story about courage. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. I want to do essentially just two things this morning in our time together. First, I want to explore the events uh, recounted here in these verses of Matthew and, and, and show, help you to see that the, the great courage that was required on the part of Joseph first. And then secondly, I want to turn and, and reflect with you on how the coming of Christ also calls us to be men and women of great courage. So first, let's explore the story of Joseph, his experience. As Matthew begins recounting the story, he tells of a young woman named Mary who is pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, to be pledged to be married, this betrothal uh, is called, was in some way similar to uh, what is practiced in our culture, this engagement, only, only it's different in that it was far more weighty. Uh, according to Jewish custom and practice at this time, to be betrothed to marry someone was a legally binding uh, arrangement that could only be broken uh, by, by a formal divorce. So, so though it's similar in some ways, it is uh, far more weighty. In fact, if one partner died during that betrothal period, the, the, the person left behind a widow would be considered a widow or a widower. Uh, so serious was this. Uh, yet during this betrothal period, there were to be no sexual relations between this man and woman. And yet uh, they were considered, uh, they, 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 this was a legally binding thing. And so that was the reality. Unfaithfulness at this point would be considered adultery with the risk of uh, stoning, though that was rarely practiced at this point in history in the first century. So Matthew tells us that Mary and Joseph were betrothed to one another. They're in this betrothal period, legally bound to one another, but not yet married, not yet engaged uh, with one another sexually. Uh, then the story gets a little earthy here. Before Joseph and Mary came together, before they had sex with one another, Mary was found to be pregnant is how our text puts it. That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, she was found to be pregnant. Ha think with me. How was that found out? How was that discovered? How was it that Joseph came to learn that? Well, obviously, Mary told him. Uh, Mary came to him. Joseph, at this point in the story, has not yet encountered the angel of the Lord. Mary has had this encounter with Gabriel, Gabriel who told her, and we read about her experience in Luke's account. But Mary has had this encounter, but Joseph hasn't. So Mary is the one who tells Joseph. Hey, can you imagine that conversation? Imagine what that would have been like for Joseph. Uh, Mary, are you serious? How can you do this to me? What do you mean you're still a virgin? That's that's impossible. Imagine the shock for Joseph. Imagine the, the deep sense of betrayal. It would have been like a massive punch to the gut. Just imagine his, his insides just twisting. This was a nightmare for him. Now, as I said, Matthew provides us with Joseph's perspective, Joseph's experience. We look to Luke to experience Mary's, and we're, we're going to focus on Joseph's experience today. But Mary's had that encounter with the angel. Mary has been told that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and, and, and overshadow her and she will conceive a son. 
though she is a virgin. But here, Matthew, Matthew's account tells us about Joseph's experience. He, he gets this news. Mary has been found to be pregnant. His fiancée, this woman to whom he's betrothed, is with child. And understandably, Joseph's conclusion would have been that she's been unfaithful. We actually learn a lot about Joseph at this point in the story. You see, Joseph faced a dilemma. He's described as a man who was faithful to the law, a righteous man. It doesn't speak of sinless perfection, but it means that he's walking in right relationship with God, seeking to obey God and, and trusting in God for his forgiveness where he, where he fails. And here he faces a dilemma. One scholar writes this, divorce for adultery was not optional but mandatory among many groups in ancient Judaism because adultery produced a state of impurity that as a matter of legal fact dissolved the marriage. So Joseph hears this news. He comes to the only logical conclusion that, that Mary has been unfaithful to him and he has before him a choice. He, he will divorce her, that much is clear, but will he do it publicly in a way that will bring great disgrace and shame upon Mary, who will be recognized as an adulteress, or would he divorce her privately, which is two or three witnesses, to try and minimize the shame, to try and show as much compassion to Mary as he can, and it was the latter option that Joseph chose. He was going to divorce her privately. He, though no doubt hurt and devastated and, and with a deep sense of betrayal, decided that this was the route he would take. He would act righteously and divorce this woman, but he would, he would show compassion and make a choice that was best for her under less than ideal circumstances. Now, we don't know how long it was between the time when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and his, this encounter with the angel of the Lord in a dream. Uh, it might have been days, hopefully, I imagine it was probably fairly soon. It was before he could follow through in his intention to divorce Mary. We read this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that, that what the angel says to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Why would Joseph be afraid of this? Why would he be afraid to take Mary home as his wife? Well, the answer is, is obvious. Because of the shame, because of the stigma, because of the hit to his reputation that marrying an unfaithful woman would, would mean for him. I mean, this was an honor-shame culture. And even though now he realized that Mary had not been unfaithful, that this was a God thing, that the Holy Spirit had, had done this, that's still the conclusion that everyone else is going to come to. I, I mean, that's the way things work. Here's what Tim Keller, Tim Keller writes. Everybody in that shame and honor society will know that his child was not born nine or ten months after they got married. They will know she was already pregnant. That would mean either Joseph and Mary had sex before marriage or she was unfaithful to him. And as a result, they're going to be shamed, socially excluded, and rejected. They are going to be second-class citizens forever. Joseph, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Do not be afraid 
of the shame. Do not be afraid of the whispers. Do not be afraid of the ridicule that you will bear. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And we discover in these few verses that Joseph obeys, that Joseph immediately does what he is told. We read in verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. This is a demonstration of great courage on Joseph's part. Not only will he face shame and the stigma of sins he did not commit, he will also, he's also walking into a future that he had not chosen and that he had not anticipated. No doubt this was not the way Joseph envisioned things when he entered into this betrothal period with Mary. And yet we see this great courage on Joseph's part as he willingly obeys the direction of God. He chooses to reject fear. He chooses obedience. He marries Mary. And as we see, as we read on in the story, we recognize that over and over and over again, Joseph will do what he's asked to do. He will, there will, he will name the child Jesus as he's instructed to. He will take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt when the angel warns him of Herod's plot to kill him. He will leave Egypt and relocate again back to Israel when the angel of the Lord speaks to him and says that Herod is dead. Over and over, Joseph's life will follow the path as God leads, not according to his own plan. He will exercise great courage in submitting, in letting go of his own reputation, letting go of his own plans, letting go of his future and surrendering completely to the will and the direction of God. So let's turn from Joseph and, and reflect together on, on how this story uh, calls us to be women and men of courage. First, we need to understand, we need to grasp that great courage, uh, the, the, the great courage that we need as we face ridicule, uh, the ridicule of the world. Uh, think again of the stares, the guffaws, the whispers that Joseph and Mary would have experienced in their world. Sure, it was the Holy Spirit. Sure, we believe that. Uh, Tim Keller writes, uh, writes this, in many non-Western countries, a profession of Christian faith can be dangerous to your very life. I'll continue to quote in a minute, but just this week, or maybe last week, I was in touch with a friend in India, someone that I met last February. And he shared with me and asked for prayer and I invite you to join me in praying for him and his church. They are going to be sharing the good news on Christmas Day. They're going to go out and share that verbally and in print. Despite the fact that there is an anti-conversion law, and despite the, the risk that that entails, not only for them, but for any who hear the good news and respond. In their context, there is danger, physical danger. Again, Tim Keller, in, in many non-Western countries, a profession of Christian faith can be dangerous to your very life. There is as yet little persecution of Christians in Western countries, but there is increasingly ridicule and contempt for those holding to historical Christian beliefs. For us, if we put our faith in Jesus, if we declare our faith, if we proclaim our faith in Jesus, the, the, the words of this book, we will increasingly face opposition and ridicule. Uh, there will be disdain uh, sent our way. Uh, more and more, 
uh, our Christian beliefs, the things that God has revealed in his word will, will come under fire and we will find ourselves ridiculed. In January, I'm going to begin a sermon series on, on uh, gender and sexuality and we're going to explore together what does God say about what it means to be a man? What does God say about what it means to be a woman? What does God say about sexuality? And, and increasingly, the things that God's word reveals to us will be laughed at and ridiculed by the world around us. If we are faithful to Jesus in proclaiming our faith in him and in following him, we will face ridicule and we need great courage to, do, to remain faithful in the face of those things. Secondly, we need great courage to surrender our lives fully to Jesus. Remember Joseph, he obeyed immediately. We read this from Keller. In that patriarchal culture, it was the father's absolute right to name his child. He had complete rights over his children, and naming was a sign of his control over the family. And yet when it came to the birth of Jesus, that, that right was gone for Joseph. Joseph was instructed, you were to name him Jesus. He had to give up control, and not only that, but he had to go when, when God told him to go, flee to Egypt, return to, to, to Israel. Over and over, Joseph had to surrender his life in, in all his plans, all his agenda. And when we come to Christ, when we put our faith in Jesus and become his disciples, we are his followers. We give up control. We no longer are controlling our own lives. We're no longer in the driver's seat. In fact, later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will say these words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus is not a life coach. Jesus is not our spiritual advisor. Jesus does not make suggestions. Jesus is king over, of, of kings. He is Lord of lords. And he calls us to die to self. He calls us to give up our agenda, to surrender our will to him. Again, Keller writes, if you want Jesus with you, you have to give up the right to self-determination. Self-denial is an act of rebellion against our late modern culture of self-assertion. But that is what we are called to, nothing less. Our culture, our world, tells us to find ourselves, to be true to ourselves. Yet Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to die to self. You need to surrender completely. And that takes great courage for us to say, Jesus, not what I will, but what you will. Thirdly, we need great courage to acknowledge what is true about ourselves. Let me draw your attention to a couple things in our text. First, Joseph is told to give the name Jesus to his son. Yeshua is the Hebrew of the word Jesus. Joshua, Yeshua. Joshua was a leader, a great leader in Israel's history and in the unfolding of their story. He, he stepped into the shoes of Moses to lead God's people, led them into the promised land. His ministry involved the liberation uh, uh, from their physical enemies. Jesus, name this child Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. He will deliver his people. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people, not from physical enemies, but from their sin. Jesus has come to achieve a liberation, but a different kind of liberation, a liberation from our sin, a liberation from our guilt. Of course, that implies something. That implies very clearly that, that we are sinners, 
that we are moral failures, that we don't love God like we are to love God, that we don't obey God like we are to obey God, that our biggest problem is the brokenness between us and God because of our rebellion against him. When our culture considers the existence of God, if not outright denying it and ignoring it, when, when our world considers, well, if there is a God, what we generally hear is that that God is all accepting, that, that God loves us, that, that that God will accept me fine because I'm a good person. But the reality is that such a God who is just accepting and loving, and that's the, the extent of, of, of that God's being, that God would not have bothered with Christmas. Why would he? The God of Scripture is a God who, yes, loves us, but he is also a God who is holy, who is righteous. The, the God of Scripture cannot ignore and shrug off sin, human rebellion, our wickedness, which is the whole reason for Christmas, for this season that we celebrate. See, our sin is so vile, so offensive that, that God must punish it in his holiness. And yet, because God is also loving, God chose to redeem us. That is, God chose to come, the person of his son, Jesus, who, who would go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sins so that, that our sin would be paid for, the punishment for our sin would be poured out on him because of his great love, satisfying both his holiness and demonstrating his love for us. See, our greatest problem is our estrangement from God, our sin, our rebellion against God. And God knew that we could never fix what's wrong with us. God knows that we are utterly helpless, that we are completely dependent, that apart from Him, we can do nothing to change our situation, that we are lost and apart from Him damned, that we will face His judgment. But that's the glory of Christmas. That's the glory of what we see here, that God in his love comes. Jesus comes. God puts on flesh. Emmanuel. God with us. If you were with us through our study of Revelation, remember that in, in the new Jerusalem, God is with us and we will see his face. That's what happens here. Christ comes. God with us. Emmanuel. God in the flesh. God in a manger. God come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To pay the penalty that you and I deserve because of our rebellion and our wickedness out of love for us so that if we trust in him, we are redeemed, we are made alive, we are adopted, we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are declared righteous. Keller writes, God doesn't send someone. He doesn't send a committee report or a preacher to tell you how to save yourself. He comes himself to fetch us. I love that. He comes himself to fetch us. But again, to to acknowledge the gospel, the, the good news proclaimed in Scripture is to acknowledge first the bad news that you and I are broken, that you and I are wicked, rebellious sinners, that we are helpless to save ourselves, that if left to ourselves, we remain under God's judgment. And it takes courage to acknowledge that. It takes courage to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my only hope. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. But when we do that, we are able to come with great confidence. The author of Hebrews says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we might or may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the question is then, how is it that we can find the strength to have this kind of courage? The answer is we need to look to Jesus. We need to look to see what Jesus has done. We need to, to look at that baby in the manger. Jesus left heaven. Jesus left glory and came to earth as a helpless baby, entrusting himself to his father's will, entrusting himself to the care of two uh, human parents. Jesus became human and willingly bore the punishment that was ours, that we deserve for our sin, for our wickedness, and, and he bore it on the cross. Jesus surrendered his life in our place so that through faith in him we might be redeemed, that we might be credited for his life of obedience, of holiness, of perfect submission. Jesus was courageous for us. And when we gaze upon him, when we watch him, when we behold his courage, we will find that God will create in us, he will give us courage. J.I. Packer points out that, that Jesus could save us only by facing an agonizing death that had him wrestling in sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane. He became mortal and vulnerable so that he could, so that he could suffer, be betrayed and killed. He faced all these things for you. And he thought it worth it. When we see the courage of Christ, Christ produces in us the courage we need to follow him as his disciples. Courage to follow him in the face of ridicule. Courage to, to follow him in obedience, in surrendering our own agenda, our own plans, and, and saying yes to whatever Jesus calls us to. Uh, courage to acknowledge that we are, apart from Christ, we are without hope, that, that we are desperate sinners in need of his grace, casting ourselves down at the foot of his cross. My hope is that this morning, Jesus will have opened our eyes to, to, to see again, to taste again for the first time the, the significance, the glory of this Christmas story, the glory of his incarnation, that we will gaze upon Christ and see his courage, the courage of Jesus who loves you, the courage of Jesus who left heaven, the courage of Jesus who surrendered himself to his Father's will, the courage of Jesus who surrendered himself to death in our place, and that as we gaze upon Christ, he would produce in us the courage that we need to live as his disciples by his power for his glory. Amen.